0: Laudator Jesus Christus, praised be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Amen. And uh, a very uh, happy, blessed, restful, and safe Saturday to all of you. Today is Saturday, the 14th of March, 2020. I am uh, recording here from my room at St. Patrick's Seminary, and I'm uh, sitting here, wrapped in a blanket, (laughs) And I have a a nice hot pot of peppermint tea over here on the desk next to me. I'm sitting here looking out of my window into the courtyard of the seminary. Um, I I live in, we kind of have uh, uh, two wings, uh, and then in the center is our chapel. And then in the the space between the wings and the chapel, there's a a courtyard. And so um, I'm sitting in my room, the window overlooks that courtyard, and there's a big tree here, and um, it's and it's raining quite, actually, well, I, I don't know about quite heavily, but um, it sure sounds like it from where I am. <laughs> and uh, I mean, just about any rainfall here in California, uh, especially it's been quite a dry year, so when we get even a little bit of rainfall, it it's a striking event. <laughs> it's a little bit of a surprise. And so, um, yeah, it's a a cool day. The sky is blank and uh, very pale gray. And I'm sitting here looking at the water, collecting into little drops at the ends of all the leaves and then uh, falling away past my line of sight. And uh, it's, it's, it's very peaceful. So because of the rain and the chill and, of course, the threat of the omnipresent coronavirus, and, uh, and not having too terribly much work to do for once. I'm sitting here in my room and, uh, and taking my leisure for <laughs> a couple of hours and enjoying this nice tea. But um, I, ha- I have to record this podcast now. Um, depending on how you look at it, it's either a day late or perhaps uh, a week late <laughs> uh, because last weekend, of course, I did not record anything. Um, and ordinarily I would record on Fridays. Yesterday, I simply didn't have the time. And um, the week before, I was away on a, a personal retreat for several days after we finished our midterm exams here at St. Patrick's. And I think I mentioned this uh, the week before. So we had our exams, which all went very well for me, thanks be to God. Um, I, was, I was just very... Uh, stressed out for a couple of days trying to get everything together because because i'd been just so busy and kind of running ragged for two three weeks before the exams that hardly had any time to study or to prepare and so i i had a couple very late nights um sort of trying to make sure that i had mastered the material for all these different tests i had four different exams um but it was it was to good effect The exams went very well, and um, when they were over, I left, let's see, Wednesday of last week um, to go over to the Carmelite Monastery in San Jose, where I lived for a while as a postulant and a novice several years ago, and so I have a good relationship with the community there. They have a lovely little guest house, which they call Casa Santa Maria, the house of Our Lady, and, um, and it's very, very nice. The monastery is up on top of a big hill and the house is kind of down at the bottom of the hill. Um, and so, and I, I was, I asked if I could come over and just stay for a few days and make a personal, private, silent retreat. And so my only interaction with the community would be Holy Mass in the mornings. For everything else, um, praying the Divine Office and cooking my own meals, I would just be on my own down in the house. And they agreed. So, I went over there Wednesday, and I stayed there through uh, Saturday, Saturday morning. And before I left, I spoke with one of our professors here at St. Patrick's, who is uh, he's a master of spiritual theology. And um, what is spiritual theology? Well, it's uh, I, I think sometimes in, the, in uh, the popular imagination, or like the, I don't know, just the general cultural zeitgeist, there's not really much of a difference that we make between spirituality and theology, which in a way is as it should be. But as an academic discipline, theology and spirituality are sort of sh- sharply distinct. Um, so, th- you know, theology comprises um, the whole kind of study of divine revelation and, and all, all the different fields which are pursuant to that. So within theology, we have these different disciplines like Christology, okay, the study of the person of Jesus, who is Jesus Christ? Who has he told us that he is? <laughs> and then what conclusions can we draw from that? And then we have uh, the, you know, Trinitarian theology. Okay, what does it mean that God is, is a trinity of persons? And how do we speak about him? And what, are the, and what are the consequences? And then we have ecclesiology. What is the church? And then, of course, the whole science of sacred scriptures. It falls into that as well. And, you know, the study of the scriptures themselves. Um, moral theology, basically applied or practical theology, like how should we live our lives um, based on what we know from divine revelation. And so it all all starts with divine revelation. Well, in a a way, it starts even before that with philosophical presuppositions and our our philosophical framework. But then we receive God's word to us. He speaks to us. And then theology is the whole discipline that, that sort of deals with that. It deals with the questions of who is God, who is God to us, and what does it mean for us that God, that God has spoken? So that's just sort of my rough. You, you could, I could, we could spend a long time giving a better definition of theology, but that's sort of rough. So spirituality, spirituality is more on the subjective level, I would say, of my relationship with God. So whereas theology is an academic uh, pursuit, um, where where we're we're kind of um, we're kind of applying the process of reasoning to divine revelation, and we're drawing out conclusions. We're sort of like mapping out all these different data points. Like, okay, God has said this and this and this, and we know this to be true and that to be true, and therefore if A, B, and C, and X and Y, therefore Z, and then therefore Z, one, two, three. Like, you know, it's a process of syllogistic reasoning almost, and drawing out conclusions and coming to a better understanding. Well, spirituality exists sort of on the level of prayer and on the level of devotion. And so it's the subjective relationship of uh, an individual person to God and God to them. And so, but then, then, then though, we have the field of spiritual theology, <laughs> which, which can sort of muddy the waters a little bit. Um, really, spiritual theology is the bridge between the two. And it's, I would say it, it deals with applying those kind of, kind of the intellectual rigor of the theological sciences to the field of spirituality. So, for example, St. John of the Cross's works, The uh, Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night of the Soul. St. John of the Cross is an incredible mystic who had just an unparalleled understanding, I think, of um, who God is and the way that God works with us, the way that he, he, he acts in our souls, his creative activity. Um, but John of the Cross is also a very skilled and subtle theologian. who trained at the University of Salamanca in the tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas, and so in his works, he, he lays out a systematic overview, an exposition of, um, of the process by which God wants to make us saints, and he brings us to perfection. And this process, you know, he bring, God sort of um, cooperates with our action. There's a primacy of God's action, but we also act. So there's an active and a passive component. There's a process of purification, uh, which brings about greater faith in the soul, Brings the soul through the dark night, through a kind of an interior spiritual passion, much like the passion of our Lord, and in order to bring it into greater union with himself. And it's beautiful. But that, th- those two books, Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night of the Soul, I would say are works not as of spirituality, but really of spiritual theology, because they're, they have this rigorous um, intellectual um, uh, approach to the spiritual life. Okay. And really, just as an aside, theology and spirituality are not to be divorced. They, they should never be, I mean, they can, you can make a distinction fruitfully between them. Not all spirituality has to have kind of a, this um, rigorously intellectual syllogistic uh, you know, approach to it. Spirituality sp- sort of springs from the heart. And, uh, and likewise, theology, sometimes when you get into the elevated realms of theology, it's the heart sort of gets left behind, <laughs> and uh, you're just sort of grappling with these logical problems. So there are, you know, to a certain extent, they are distinct, but they should never be divorced. Um, the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar would, would say the greatest theologian is, is uh, the one who does theology on his knees, that is to say, at prayer. And, of course, I mean, it's just sort of common sense. Um, theology, uh, the, whole, the whole practice, you know, studying divine revelation
1: <laughs>
0: and all the conclusions that come from it. We can't lose sight of the fact that this is God speaking to me. This is not just, you know, I can't just be blasé in the face of this. It's not just like I'm studying, um, you know, anatomy or uh, archaeology or some other thing that starts with A. <laughs> It's like, no, I'm I'm personally involved in this. God's speaking to humanity. I'm a part of humanity. God's my creator. He's my redeemer. He's my savior. He's speaking to me. So the two are always um, interrelated. The field of spiritual theology, in a particular way, is kind of uh, the bridge between them. And so this professor who I was speaking to, he's a master of spiritual theology. He's well-versed in the Carmelites, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, St. Therese, and a Carmelite who's not so well-known, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. And um, when I went to speak with him, you know, I, I I knew that he he was an expert in the writings of Saint Elizabeth. And uh, I knew that from some lectures he'd given us earlier, uh, a couple years ago, actually, when I was here for a summer program. And so I knew that about him, and I knew Saint Elizabeth had written this retreat for her sister, um, her biological sister, I should say. And that, Saint, so St. Saint Elizabeth came from a Catholic family. She became a Carmelite nun, very close to the same time as St. Therese. They're both French. Therese, of course, entered the Carmel at Lisieux, and Elizabeth entered the Carmel at Dijon. And as far as I know, they never met. But Hans Urs von Balpazar, who I quoted earlier, called them two sisters in the spirit, because they both lived at the same time, and the Lord led them both through a really remarkably... Um, parallel uh, paths. And their spiritualities are very... They sort of rhyme with each other, if that makes sense. Like, they're very complementary. And and there's a lot of similarities. Although they never met, which is very interesting. But anyway, so I knew that Elizabeth, when she had entered Carmel, she had a sister who I think was named Marguerite. She always calls her Geet. <laughs> and uh, her sister, at this time had, I think, two young children and the sister was living out in the world in a secular life. She was Catholic and I think very devout, but she was kind of caught up in all these worldly preoccupations and raising two kids, I mean, that's, you know, it's sort of difficult to maintain a prayer life and to to have a, a close spiritual relationship with God at that time. Spirituality. And so St. Elizabeth was very concerned about her poor sister, Geet, who she loved very much. And St. Elizabeth was ill. She was lying in the infirmary. And her Carmelite community was having a retreat. But she wasn't allowed to participate because she was so sick. So she begged the Mother Superior for a notebook, which was given to her. And in the notebook, she wrote her own retreat (laughs) for, for her sister, with her sister in mind, you know. Uh, And it was supposed to be, there there were two prayers each day, and it lasted for 10 days, so 20 prayers. And um, she wrote all this out, and the intention was to be something that her sister could use to pray with in the midst of all of her occupations. Because St. Elizabeth did not believe that having a very busy and preoccupied life was any excuse to prevent you from having a close relationship and indeed a union with God. So she wrote this for her sister, in order for her to pray in the midst of her life, in the midst of all her duties, just two prayers a day, in order to guide her into that that close relationship, indeed union, with God. I didn't know all of that uh, ahead of time. I I learned it from talking to this wonderful professor of mine. But I, I knew at least that he was an expert in Elizabeth and that she had written this retreat. And I was planning to go on retreat. And some movement of the Holy Spirit in my heart just reminded me about St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's retreat. So, <laughs> the day before I went, I went and spoke to this professor. And I just told him, I said, um, you know, th- these past few weeks have been so busy. I feel like we're on the verge of just being burnt out. And um, especially over these past couple days with midterms, I just felt totally exhausted. My prayer life has been sort of irregular and on the most, for the most part pretty dry. And now that we're in the season of Lent, you know, the Lord's leading me into the desert. And I want to go and I want him, I want just to be available to him, for him to speak to my heart. So I'm going on retreat and I want to do St. Elizabeth's retreat that she wrote for her sister. And uh, he got so excited and he gave, he gave me uh, the book. So there's a book of her collected works, which has the retreat in it. And he told me the background and gave me some preparation for what I ought to do, how I, how I could you know follow this. He said to make two prayer periods a day of one hour each, one in the morning and one in the evening, um, to begin each one with one prayer that St. Elizabeth wrote called, it starts out, Oh my God, Trinity, whom I adore, help me to forget myself entirely that I may be established in you as still and as peaceful as if my soul were already in eternity. And it's quite a long prayer. It goes on for a while. So he said, begin every every one of these holy hours with that prayer and then just peacefully read through the prayer from the retreat that corresponds to that day and that time. So first prayer or second prayer of whatever day it is. Um, and then... Over the, for the remainder of the time, just meditate on it. If, if your mind wanders, just go back to the text. You know, basic um, spiritual advice. <laughs> but um, just kind of allow the Lord to lead you as He will. You know? So the text is like your spring off point to go into an intimate conversation with God. Uh, so that was the advice that I followed. Oh, and then one other thing. Because he is an expert in St. Elizabeth and he has a lot of connections with her and He's been to Dijon, and I think he's been. He wrote his thesis on her, you know. And anyway, through some some connection or other, he had a tiny little relic of Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, a lock of her hair, which he keeps in a little, like folded leather, um, like a tiny little book inside of his wallet. Well, with a, it, you know, it's it's kind of like um. I don't know what you would call it. Something that you would keep a family photo in. And on one side, there's a photo of St. Elizabeth. And on the other side, there's this little lock of her hair. And so he gave me that to take onto my retreat, which I thought, wow, that's such an honor. And it was really beautiful, you know, to have her um, present with me in that way. Obviously, she's spiritually present that I was in- invoking her um, at-, at every one of these prayer periods but also to have this little relic was a real added bonus. So I went on to the retreat and I'll speak more about the theological significance of it in the theology section because her retreat is called Heaven in Faith. Heaven in Faith, not and. So as if um, heaven exists somehow in our faith. And... um, That idea bears a little bit more scrutiny and more unpacking, but she begins on the very first day of the retreat, um, emphasizing the the fact that you know where God is there where God is, (laughs) there is heaven, and um, our whole our what 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 is heaven except for union with God? Everything that we're aiming toward is what we call beatitude, blessedness. Is simply union with God, and likewise, hell is nothing more nor less than a final divorce from God, than being in a in a quite you know irrevocable way cut off from God, and that's the greatest tragedy there is because we're made for God, our hearts Saint Augustine says our hearts are restless until they rest in You, and so that's that's the great terror of hell. Um, I had a spiritual director and professor once at my old seminary who actually described hell in this way. He said, imagine being an astronaut <laughs> on the International Space Station and uh, you go out to do some you know, external repairs and you get cut off from the station and you're there in your little space suit and you're just drifting further and further and further away. and there's." No possibility of rescue. And you know that with every moment that slips by, you're drifting a little bit further away from everyone and everything you have ever known and loved. And you are utterly alone. (sighs) Wow. And, of course, and then you multiply that by infinity. It's... uh. It's endlessness, endless isolation from God and from from all love. It's a terror. But when we consider the idea of beatitude as this union with God who is love, God who created us out of love, he made us for love, for his own love, um, well, then we begin to see that heaven, which indeed we are made for, heaven heaven is now (laughs) and you have to understand this rightly Um, you know because we live in a cultural context where we've been affected sort of by this trend of like liberation theology and immanentizing the eschaton and these things that St. Elizabeth didn't really have to deal with and I I really should probably leave this for the theology segment so maybe I'll just cut that off there but um so it's not to say that, that that you know heaven is not our final destiny, or that somehow this world is all there is. Like we, we what we participate in now is sort of only a shadow of this great reality that we will experience in its fullness at you know at the end of time. But even now, where God is, there is heaven, and God is with us at the innermost depths of our being, down deep in our soul, in the in the very essence of our soul. This is the doctrine of the indwelling of the Trinity, which is when, when we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then, as Jesus promised, my Father and I, and indeed the Holy Spirit, um, will come to dwell with Him, will come to remain with Him. And so God, in, in, his, in His three persons, comes to dwell inside the soul of everyone who is baptized in His name. And therefore, this provides the grounding for what St. Teresa says about prayer, that you don't need to go far abroad looking for God. You don't need to, in a sense, cast your eyes upon a distant mountain. You don't have to imagine yourself to be at Calvary or exhaust yourself in, in you know lengthy meditations. Um, we have all kinds of techniques of prayer in the Christian tradition, okay? Like St. Ignatius teaches us To use the imagination. Um, And there are other, there are quite a number of uh, different spiritual masters, like St. Francis de Sales, I think is one, who advise using these discursive meditations to um, sort of like, you know, wake up the emotions and make us feel like we're really there, imagine what it's like if we were there with Jesus, and sort of get our hearts stirred up. And these things are not bad. But St. Teresa, I think, taps into. Um, a deeper truth when she says there's no need to exhaust ourselves doing all these things <laughs> because God God is with us here and now in this moment wherever we may happen to be however we find ourselves whatever our emotional state is God remains with us he dwells with us at the very depths of our being sometimes you know, even though our minds and our imaginations and our emotions may be all over the place, and the um, interior sea, if you will, of the mind, of the soul, is all stirred up by a great storm, God is present there at a level deeper than the waves, at a level deeper than the wind. And the. Um, St. Teresa once described the imagination like a lunatic <laughs> who cannot be controlled but who's kind of like bouncing off the walls, you know. Um, But God is present there at a level where he can't be disturbed by the lunatic of our imagination. He is present in a way that is stable and peaceful, immutable, unchanging. And that's why St. Elizabeth's prayer, you know, O God, Trinity whom I adore, help me to forget myself and, and all these distractions that I may be established in you, that is to say, in the depths of my soul where you abide with me, um, as still and as peaceful as if I were already in eternity, in that eternal beatitude of union with God in heaven where indeed we will see Him as He is and we will come to share in His perfection, in His beatitude. Here in the world, we're tossed about on the storms of life. <laughs> but... But this is, this is, I think, the kernel, the, the pearl of great price of St. Elizabeth's teaching. If we are attentive to the God who dwells with us in the depths of our being, we can be established in Him, we can be rooted in Him, we can be as peaceful and still and trusting and confident in Him, no matter what is occurring around us or even within us on the more superficial levels of our soul. All we have to do is be attentive to the one who is within us and who we know loves us. There's something more that I want to say about this, but I really will leave it for later. (laughs) But um, suffice it to say, I spent three very beautiful days at the Carmelite Monastery with my friend, St. Elizabeth. And... um, and the whole company of saints and angels. Um, I had had some, also just on the physical level, some good rest. It was a joy to cook for myself. I hardly ever get to, because um, I live in a seminary, and, and we have these wonderful nuns who prepare our meals for us. But um, I brought some food with me, and I was able to cook some nice meals. And um, I went on Friday, of that week. I went out to sing, you know, the Byzantine Vespers, as I'm doing every Friday at this local parish, which went very well. I did it again yesterday, and uh, there's three more weeks of Lent where I'll be singing, and I'm starting to learn the tones. (laughs) The music is coming together. I'm starting to learn also their liturgy, so I have a better idea of when to come in (laughs) and things like that. So slowly but surely, we're getting it together. And probably by the end of Lent, um, I will have learned it fully. (laughs) But uh, uh, it's a fun adventure, and it's a very, very beautiful liturgy. Then, over the weekend from Saturday to Sunday, I drove an incredible amount, like probably 12 hours. Why? Because I was attending one of my good friends' ordination to the priesthood and his first mass. The ordination was in Santa Rosa, which was two hours up from uh, from San Jose, where I was staying. So early Saturday morning, I mean, I woke up at like 4 a.m. to do the first prayer period uh, of this retreat. Then cleaned up the whole house, got everything together, drove two hours to Santa Rosa. I got there in the nick of time for the ordination mass. Um, and all the seminarians were sitting in choir. And so I... Uh, I had my cassock on already, I was running over to the church, the procession was forming, I put on my surplus, and I just j- jumped into the procession <laughs> as they were preparing to enter the church. <laughs> but, uh, but I made it, I definitely made it in time. And the ordination was beautiful, and then after that, I went with a friend of mine, who's a seminarian from Santa Rosa, to stay at a parish in Napa Valley, which was an hour and a half or so uh, back east from Santa Rosa. We stayed there for Saturday night. Then we left very early Sunday to drive five hours north to the town of Arcata, which is near Eureka, all the way up Highway 101. It's like halfway home for me. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> by the time we got there yeah, I mean we were closer to Oregon than we were to San Francisco but anyway we drove all the way up there and uh, on Sunday afternoon assisted at my friend's first holy mass as a priest it was a solemn high mass with incense and a wonderful choir and a bunch of seminarians went even some priests from the seminary uh, went and uh, it was just a wonderful occasion and it, it's you know it's always a joy um for a, a seminarian when you see your friends ascend to the altar of god it's um it's inspiring it's a reminder of the vocation that god has given us and just the majesty and the beauty of the vocation because the whole the heart of a priest's whole life is the holy mass and um so to see this man who i've been blessed to know for a few years and um and Just to be able to see him for the first time celebrate the Holy Mysteries was a a great joy. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world or even for the 12 hours of driving. (laughs) So we were there uh, until late afternoon Sunday and then drove all the way back down to Santa Rosa where we dropped off another seminarian and then back to St. Patrick's late Sunday night. We got back here about midnight. And then uh, we're here in time for classes again on Monday. And then unfortunately this week I got a little bit sick. Actually, I think over the weekend, some, sometime in all this traveling, I, I was getting a little bit sick. And um, I, I think it was just a cold Um, but our our rector of the seminary sent around an email instructing us to keep to our rooms if we have any cold symptoms at all. (laughs) Even, you know, absent fever or anything like that, any any symptoms, just stay in your room as part of our precautions against the coronavirus. And so that email was sent at midday on Monday. So I went to mass and classes Monday morning. But when I saw it, I I was in my room and I decided, well, I guess I'll just stay here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I didn't go to any afternoon classes that day, and I just uh, rested the rest of the day, Monday and Tuesday and, um, and Wednesday. And then Thursday, I was back for classes. So it's been, um, well, it's been a wonderful couple of weeks. I mean, this week and last week. From the retreat to this, you know, trip up for my friend's ordination at first mass. And even with being a bit sick for a couple of days, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really that bad. So I was just in my room, um, kind of, you know, finishing up the retreat. Right, because the three days that I was at the monastery, it was only the beginning of St. Elizabeth's retreat, uh, which lasts for 10 days. So in fact, even now, I'm just finishing it up. Um, so this whole period has been really a, a time of a, a great recreation for me, I think I could say. Um after f- February, which was a very stressful month, and the time that um my, although I was uh <laughs> making great progress in theology in some ways, my spiritual life was rather dry, but um this This gift that St. Elizabeth and my professor gave to me in the form of her retreat, Heaven and Faith, has been such a powerful movement of recreation, of restoration, and of rest, simply of rest, (laughs) resting in the Lord, resting in His immutable presence within my soul. It's also been a time to catch up on some reading, and... uh, Yesterday, I believe, or perhaps Thursday, I think Thursday, I finished Richard the Third, which is the last play in what is called Shakespeare's uh, minor tetralogy. It started out with the three parts of Henry the Sixth, which we read back in January, and now, after an interlude with a bunch of other plays we read in between, now we've finished it with Richard the Third, and. Um, Reading Richard III has kind of caused me to reevaluate some of my conclusions about Henry VI. So, without any further ado, let's uh, spend a few moments talking about that.
1: All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players.
0: So, I've just poured myself another cup of peppermint tea, and uh, I, it, it's really it's really a delight to be sitting here. I've got my blanket, got my tea. <laughs> I've got the complete works of Shakespeare. And uh, this is like a dream Saturday for me. And it's raining outside. It's kind of gloomy. And I've got my lamp on. It seems like I'm in Oregon or something. <laughs> anyway, um, I am surprised that I had not read Richard the Third before. But actually, I've never read this play. I've never seen it. I know it's very famous and as I was reading through it, you know, I was encountering all these famous lines that I hear quoted all the time and that I have even quoted without knowing where they came from. (laughs) So it starts with this famous soliloquy which begins, you know, from from, uh, Richard. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. And so where he begins to lay out his whole wicked plan for how he's gonna seize the kingship and take over the kingdom. And then uh, it ends, you know, in, in I think in the very final act, where he's being pursued on the battlefield, and he's crying out, "A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse," <laughs> which is uh, which is uh, a line that I never understood <laughs> in its, at least in its context, um, and now I have an idea of of why uh, why people say that. <laughs> so it's been a great education reading Richard III. Richard the is really a, an an awful awful character, um, and yet you you have to have a certain sympathy with him. I mean, in a very limited way, as you're reading this play, but I think he 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 compels you to have a certain sympathy with him in this way that that villains do when they are protagonists. Um, and I think it sort of, it begins with that first soliloquy back in Act 1, Scene 1, where he's laying out his, his plans um, in order to get the kingship. Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels, and dreams, to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false, and treacherous, this day should Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that he of Edward's heirs, the murderer shall be and so he, he the thing the thing I think that that causes this sort of sympathy maybe sympathy is not even the right word, but um, I'll, I'll ponder what a better word might be, but for now let's say sympathy with Richard the third is that because he's laying out his his, his plots and he's so unambiguously a villain to us i mean cuz we can see the way that he, he's he's so two-faced you know on the one hand he deals with Clarence as if he's a loving brother and then he turns around and stabs him in the back all throughout the play he's doing this and we can see we can hear his little asides you know where he's he's presenting this modest and courteous and loving and devoted face to others and then in his little asides he's <laughs> revealing um you know how he how little he really thinks of everyone around him his own conceit and his own, uh, you know, uh, unveiled ambition. And I think because we have that interior knowledge, we have that sort of omniscience as readers, um, we become, in a way, implicated in his plots. And so we have sympathy with him to that extent. Like, we can see everything he's doing, and as the old Roman uh, legal saying has it, Qui uh, tacet, consentitur videt. He who keeps silence appears to consent, basically. And so we hear everything that's going on, and because we quote unquote keep silence, I mean, what can we really do or say? I mean, this is a play, but <laughs> we hear we hear and see what's going on. We have total knowledge of what Richard the uh, I mean, before he's Richard the Third, but for now, Richard Gloucester, the Duke of York. We see what he is doing, what he's about, and we just continue reading the play and we're passive observers and to that extent, we're implicated and therefore, to that extent, we have a kind of sympathy with Richard. And so, it's, I just wanted to open with that because I think it's interesting how this play, the protagonist is so unambiguously a villain. I mean, he is out only for his own gain. He doesn't care who he destroys along the way. Like, he, he kills so many of his supporters. And uh, famously, he slaughters the two young princes in the Tower of London. And before the play even begins, he's, at the end of Henry VI, he's just killed Henry VI in the Tower of London. <coughs> Excuse me. And the play opens in Act, uh, act One, Scene Two, with Lady Anne um, bringing along King Henry VI's corpse, okay, in an open coffin, in this funeral procession, and she's lamenting for him. And uh, then R- Richard uh, of Gloucester comes in and interrupts the whole procession, and, uh, and King Henry's body starts to bleed in his presence, which is very interesting. And so the Lady Anne says, Oh gentlemen, see, dead Henry's wounds open their congealed mouths and bleed afresh. Blush, blush, thou lump of foul deformity, for tis thy presence, she says to Richard, that exhales this blood from cold and empty veins where no blood dwells. Thy deed, inhuman and unnatural, provokes this deluge, supernatural. This apparently was, uh, I suppose, a sort of a widespread belief in the Middle Ages that the body of someone who had been murdered would begin to bleed in the presence of the murderer, or at least that it, it, it could. Um, and so I think even in, in England, under the common law, there were these, this option for murderers who were on trial, of kind of like trial by corpse, <laughs> where they would go out and like circle around the body of the deceased and call out his name. And if the corpse began to bleed, that would be evidence, you know, on the strength of which that person could be convicted of the murder. And so, interestingly though, I I was doing just a little bit of research on this, and it seems that a lot of what Shakespeare includes in his historical plays is invented, or at least of sort of dubious historical origin. But from what I could uncover, this scene... ...of King Henry's corpse bleeding in the presence of Richard is historically attested, which is very interesting. And it's interesting that it's King Henry the Sixth too, who, by his whole sort of life, his whole manner of living, he was a, a, basically a saint. He lived a very holy life. And we know in our Christian tradition that the bodies of the saints very often have these miraculous effects which are attributed to them. I mean, that's sort of our whole um, spirituality of relics. That's why we have relics of the saints. And, um, you know, some saints are miraculously preserved as incorruptible. Their bodies never decay, or not for a long time. And others, when they're exhumed, um, there's a wonderful scent around them, like of flowers, rather than the smell of uh, decay. And um, sometimes miraculous healings are worked by contact with, the bodies of the saints, things like that. So I know um, some saints in the East have like streamed forth oil, like uh, fragrant oil, chrism, perfumed oil, at various times. There's the blood of Saint Januarius in Naples, which would liquefy each year on his feast day. So it's dried blood, but at Mass on his feast, when the bishop would take out the little vial of dried blood, it would miraculously liquefy. They'd hold a procession and the only times it didn't were times of incredible disaster for the city and they foretold times of like great earthquake or, or volcanic eruption or war and things like that. So the bodies of the saints, they have these miraculous attributes. It's interesting that the body of King Henry VI, this holy king whom Queen Margaret said it would be more fitting for him to be pope than to be king of England. All he cares about is praying the rosary and studying his books rather than going to war. And then in the presence of his murderer, Richard the villain, his wounds begin to bleed again, um, revealing that indeed it was Richard who killed him, confirming Lady Anne's suspicions. So that's something very interesting. This whole play, though, of, of Richard III, it has... Obviously, it's a, a, an incredible play. I mean, I think it's a masterwork of drama, um, it's, you know The characterizations are wonderful, and the characterization of Richard is so marvelously wicked. It, uh, <laughs> it really draws you in. And uh, seeing Queen Margaret, I mean, we got to know her in Henry VI, all the way from when Henry took her as his wife from France, to her coming up through the court, um, becoming this sort of lion-hearted woman, leading his armies in battle. We see her cruelty uh, at the height of her power. You know, as she, um, she has the young Rutland killed and then she dabs her handkerchief in his blood and shows it to his father to quell their rebellion and to sort of um, to, to, um, show her victory over them. And now in Richard III, we see her in decrepitude. <laughs> She's a deposed queen. She's a widow. Her husband, Henry, was killed by Richard. And her son, Edward, was killed. And she shows up early in this play, and she she lays a curse on everybody. <laughs> and it's interesting to see how her curse plays out over the course of the play. Um, she curses all of these noblemen who are allied with Richard, And ultimately, all of them die. And to a man, Richard is the one who kills them. So they've sort of pledged their allegiance to Richard. And over time, he eliminates them all. And Margaret, though, also lays a curse on Richard. And at the end of the play, we know Richard is bested by um, Henry VII, who kind of begins this this new line the tudor dynasty and uh so richard you know he's set about in battle and he's de- he's unhorsed and <laughs> he goes about crying out my kingdom for a horse and then in the end he is slain so queen margaret we see her here now at the end sort of at the at the lowest point of her whole life utterly powerless uh But in a way, though, her power seems to remain. And in a way, it might even be greater than when she was the queen and the leader of all these armies because she lays this curse, which is apparently efficacious, on Richard and on all of his kind of faction. And the curse comes to pass. Now, what's interesting about this is there's a a kind of uh, continuity between Queen Margaret and Joan of Arc. And we see that back in Henry VI. Joan of Arc was portrayed, and indeed she was in reality, as this, uh, this warrior queen almost. She, she wasn't the queen of France, but she has this, this regal bearing, and she's a great warrior, and she leads France to reconquer all these territories that England had taken from them. And so Shakespeare paints her as this uh, demon-possessed, um, adulterous, Immoral woman who has, you know, she has the strength that she does only because she's allied with the devil and she leads France's armies and ultimately she is, she dies, uh, you know, lying and, and, and begging for her life and then cursing England. Well, Joan dies having cursed England, okay, and then in the very next scene, that's when we meet Queen Margaret. And you can make a case that Queen Margaret is continuing on the legacy of Joan of Arc, Joan La Pousselle. <laughs> because Queen Margaret, in, in her own way, does quite as much damage to England, and good for France, as Joan of Arc ever did. Because Queen Margaret then goes over to England, and uh, in order to get her there, Henry VI gives back to France these territories of Anjou and Maine, which England had won in the war. So he just gives them back to France. And he levies a tax on his people of something like 10% of everything in order to pay for Queen Margaret's expenses. and that, So that money is basically going to the French crown. And then now as England's queen, queen, Queen Margaret, when she leads these wars on behalf of Henry VI, these, these Wars of the Roses, you could, you could make the case that If Henry VI had never brought Queen Margaret over to England, the Wars of the Roses would not have happened. Because Henry VI was inclined by temperament and by piety to make peace. You can see that all throughout the plays that bear his name. He's always trying to make peace. Make peace between his nobles, between uh, Gloucester, and between the bishop or or cardinal of Winchester, um, Cardinal Beaufort. Between all of these petty, you know, warlike lords who are jockeying with each other for power, he's always trying to smooth things over, and uh, and ensure and ensure peace in his house, right? And, uh, and, and even even at this moment, and I criticized him for this before, and I would like to sort of temper that criticism now. But even at this moment, where the House of York has gained the throne, and Henry the Sixth, Henry the Sixth. Uh, sort of negotiates and says, well, just let me finish out my reign in peace and then you can have the throne. And Queen Margaret is sort of, you know, uh, she, she won't tolerate this. She says, well, how can you promise that? You've disinherited your own son and she goes to war on his behalf. Uh, and she, and then, she, you know, then come all the wars of succession, the wars of the roses to, at their highest peak. But King Henry, if, if not for Queen Margaret, King Henry would have brokered that deal. And he would have finished out his own reign, probably in peace. It might have been a short one. He might have been assassinated or something, you know, but he would have finished out his own reign and then the House of York would have ascended to the throne. So he was always, he was always trying to make peace and to ensure stability for the kingdom, I think. Um, whereas Queen Margaret, Queen Margaret was fighting on behalf of her son's rights, to the throne to succession and on behalf of her faction the house of Lancaster so against York I don't know I just um, it, it's interesting to consider the whole sort of historical context of these plays you know Shakespeare is writing at the time of Elizabeth I and Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and so her grandfather Henry VII is the one who slays Richard III at the end of this play. And so this is not too distant history at the time that Shakespeare's writing. And um, of course, you know, you couldn't really express, oh, sorry, I think I moved the microphone a little bit, but, uh, you know, at Shakespeare's time, it would be very dangerous to openly express uh, political discontent, you know, with the current reign. And so you couldn't really speak out against the House of Tudor, which is, what began with Henry VII and to which Elizabeth I belonged, you couldn't really express any discontent with them. You certainly couldn't express discontent with the Protestant Reformation, which had by then taken, taken hold of England. Um, so, so you could see the way that that informs Shakespeare's characterization of Richard III, who, is, who was, despite his, his villainy, um, he's England's last Catholic king. I mean after I mean you could maybe make a case for King Henry the 7th but certain with Henry the 8th the reformation in England really began so Richard the 3rd at any rate he's the last of the line of English kings of the the kind of catholic middle ages right so Richard the 3rd is depicted by shakespeare as a totally um, as I've said before, unambiguous villain. I mean, all over the top. I mean, he's hunched hunchbacked. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's this, uh, He's got a withered arm. He had a full set of teeth when he was born. I mean, he's like a demon in human form. I mean, that's at least, that's you know how Shakespeare sort of intends to present him to us, right? He's this. Uh, he's barely human. And uh, then we saw very well how he depicted Joan of Arc. As this horrible figure, this witch, this uh, who's allied with the devil, fighting for France. <laughs> and then even Queen Margaret of Anjou is depicted as this, they, they call her the she-wolf of France, who's cruel beyond cruel. And then Henry VI, Shakespeare depicts him as this sort of milk-toast bookworm, um, who's pious, uh, in a way that's really ridiculous. His piety is is totally unbefitting of an English king, and it would be more suitable for him to go off and be the pope than to be the king over England. And so Shakespeare, okay, he's living in this the time of the Tudors, the dynast- Tudor dynasty under Elizabeth I, and he's looking back at these past generations, not too distant past, though, of England's kings, before the Reformation and, and Queens and Joan of Arc <laughs> of this time before the Reformation and so he's depicting them in this way that that is um, that that is of the moment of that political moment It's the only way that they can really be depicted in England at that time uh, that will at least safely <laughs> and that will appeal to the masses because this is the story this is the national story all right if uh, if Richard III wasn't a vicious, evil tyrant, and you know, then then, then why did we need to have this uh, revolution? why did Henry VII have to depose him if he wasn't terrible? <laughs> and then yeah, and then likewise, if Henry VI wasn't totally uh, ineffective and weak, and Queen Margaret of Anjou wasn't cruel and merciless, then uh, why did you know why did they why did their dynasty have to be replaced? So they have to be depicted in this way. But I want to look back for a couple moments at the character of Henry VI, and specifically at this moment, at the end of Henry VI, Part 3, Act 5, Scene 7, when Richard, who becomes Richard III, comes into the Tower of London and slays him. And I think in this scene, we see such powerful imagery of martyrdom that I just wanted to take a look at it. So uh, Richard comes in, and he greets King Henry. Good day, my lord. And And he finds King Henry there reading a book, a prayer book. He sends away the lieutenant, who has been set to guard King Henry VI in the tower. King Henry says, So flies the reckless shepherd from the wolf. So first the harmless sheep doth yield his fleece, and next his throat unto the butcher's knife. There we have, obviously, powerful parallels with the imagery of the shepherd and the sheep from the New Testament. I mean, think of the passage where Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter.
1: Huh?
0: And he's, it's a prophecy of his own passion. I mean, he, he calls himself, he says, I am the good shepherd, I will lay down my life for the sheep. And so already with the image of, of the shepherd, there's, this, there's, there's a, obviously a powerful parallel, in allusion to our Lord. But there's this strong image of the one who will be struck, the shepherd who must lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. And so King Henry, by put it, well, we can say Shakespeare, right? by putting these words in King Henry's mouth, is depicting him as a, as a kind of a martyr who will, be, who will yield his throat unto the butcher's knife. <laughs> and Richard is this merciless butcher who is coming to slay the king. And then they have this conversation Richard says, Thinkst thou I am an executioner? King Henry, A persecutor, I am sure thou art. And if murdering innocents be executing, why then thou art an executioner? So Henry here is leveling an accusation against Richard of having, uh, that Richard has killed King Henry and Queen Margaret's son, Edward. Richard says, Thy son I killed for his presumption. And King Henry then embarks on this really prophetic accusation of Richard. So Richard is saying, "I killed your son because of his presumption, because he because of his lip, <laughs> because he spoke to me so uh, um, in, 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 you know so boldly." And King Henry, in a way that I think is sort of reminiscent of um, Nathan the prophet towards David, begins to speak to Richard just as boldly or more so than his son did, laying out his evil. And he, he, he says to him, he's laying out this sort of litany of, um, uh, yeah, of the evil, of, of even of Richard's birth. The owl shrieked at thy birth, an evil sign. The night crow cried, aboding luckless time. Dogs howled, and hideous tempests shook down trees. The raven rooked her on the chimney's top and chattering pies in dismal discord sung. Thy mother felt more than a mother's pain and yet brought forth less than a mother's hope. To wit, an indigested and deformant lump, not like the fruit of such a goodly tree. Teeth hadst thou in thy head when thou wast born to signify thou camest to bite the world. And if the rest be true which I have heard, thou camest... But Richard interrupts him and says, I'll hear no more. Die, prophet, in thy speech. And stabs him. For this, amongst the rest, was I ordained. Now I think it's very telling that Richard in this moment calls King Henry a prophet. Because the office of a prophet is so closely connected to truth. A prophet is basically one who speaks for God, he's chosen by God, and he goes out into the world and speaks a message, a prophetic message to God's people. Usually that message is repentance, uh, to, to uh, you know, turn away from the path that you have chosen and come back to me. And to a man, uh, almost everyone, I, th- I think every one of Israel's prophets were martyred. They were all killed because this is not popular, (laughs) as you can imagine. I mean, to have someone come, uh, you know, the prophets would come um, often to the kings of Israel and tell them, what you are doing is wrong. You need to amend your ways. You need to call the whole people to repentance and come back to the Lord or you will surely either die or go into exile or lead the people into ruin. And kings don't like to hear this type of thing. And so the prophets were persecuted and all of them um, were martyred. And uh, we see this with King Henry in a way as well. And this is why I want to temper my earlier comments about King Henry when we were speaking about his cycle of plays. You know, I, I said that King Henry, um, because he didn't want to be king at all, <clears throat> and he would have preferred to have a life, a sort of a rustic life, or he could just... Uh, be among his books and say his prayers and you know be a, a farmer or something he didn't want to have all this responsibility and so he was indecisive and especially he was not a strong leader of his lords and he allowed them far too much control and to sort of do what they what they would so i faulted him for that and i think that's valid but i think also there's something to this vision of henry the 6th as a prophet I mean, his vocation was to be the king of England, and indeed he was. He, he reigned over England. He didn't reign uh, with great strength of will or with great perspicacity, and he, to be sure, he allowed his lords far too much free reign. But I wonder if perhaps something of King Henry's vocation might have been fulfilled in this moment of martyrdom. As we can see with the prophets, I mean, the prophets of, of, of Israel, uh, you know, the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord sends him, he says, I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people with foreheads of bronze. <laughs> so I'm sending you to speak my word and I know they will not hear it. Their necks are stiff, they won't bow their heads and their foreheads are hard like bronze and your words will bounce right off <laughs> as, uh, as like arrows off of bronze shields. Yet I'm still sending you. I'm sending you to this hard-hearted people, this stiff-necked people, to tell them to repent. I know full well, okay, I'm God. <laughs> I know they will not repent. Nevertheless, I'm calling you to be faithful to me, to go out and to speak my words to them. In a way, that's the office of the prophet. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call to be faithful not necessarily or even primarily to be, uh, to be successful, but a call to be faithful. And we do see that in the life of King Henry VI. We see his fidelity. We see, you know, he, he perseveres in his, in his vocation as king. He doesn't abdicate the throne. The most we can say that he does is when the throne is, is, is usurped, he still claims his right to it. He says, allow me to reign until I die and then you can have it. And so he, he doesn't abandon his responsibility. He holds to the throne. He's constantly in prayer, and um, <laughs> he's uh, and he's con- oh, and I forgot to mention. he's he's constantly trying to broker peace amongst his lords and, and and more broadly, you know, but even between England and France and and among all the peoples, he's trying to maintain this peace. But with Henry the Sixth we can see the old faith and the old ways are, 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 are dying away, and something new is being brought to birth with gasps and with labor pangs in England. Catholic England is dying, <laughs> and I don't want to make too much of this, but I think there's something to it. You know, there's a whole scholarly debate over whether Shakespeare was Catholic or not, and how much he was really able to say of what he thought in his plays, and things like that. With King Henry VI, I mean, Henry, King Henry VI is really the most unabashedly pious and Catholic character, probably, well, certainly in all the plays I've read so far, probably in all of Shakespeare's canon. I mean, he's so Catholic. <laughs> and here he dies as a martyr. He dies, his, own, his enemy calls him a prophet. And he dies as a martyr in the Tower of London to Richard III. This villain king <laughs> who arises and, and, and shines for a brief time after him. And then he too is slain by Henry VII, uh, which portends and brings about the whole Protestant Reformation. And so Henry VI, if we can if we can envision him for a moment as the shepherd who is struck, who lays down his life for these poor sheep of England, who indeed then are scattered, and, and everything goes to the dogs, <laughs> in a way. Um, then perhaps we can see his character with, with greater sympathy. Um, it was never his vocation to be a strong king who could hold the lords in line, and who could sort of, um, you know, uh, reconquer France and regain England's lost glories and hold this country together by sheer force of will. It was his vocation rather to be the, the prophet who would go unheeded but who would remain faithful and the martyr who would shed his blood in fidelity to his Lord and to the ancient faith and who to his last breath would be loyal and unyielding to his own um, moral compass, to his own principles. So, I don't know if those thoughts are really very useful or <laughs> even very coherent, but um, that's what Richard III made me reevaluate about King Henry VI. I want to also mention this character of, of Queen Margaret, as we talked about before, who is, uh, who's, who's, begins sort of early in the play by cursing everybody. She's been so reduced from her status as the warrior queen. Now she has no power but to curse. And there's this, there's this moment where she is standing there with two other widows and, uh, and mothers of children who have, who have been killed, grieving mothers, grieving widows. And they're all wailing, and they're all sort of competing with one another in a, in a, in a way to show whose grief is the greatest. When I was reading this scene, I was practicing a piece of music for the Byzantine Divine Liturgy. It's called um, The Grieving Mother. And it's a hymn which we've been singing every night at the end of the Friday liturgies during Lent. It's a hymn to Our Blessed Lady. And of course, you know, in the Catholic tradition, we also have this hymn, the Stabat Mater, which we sing during Lent, means um, the, the Mother Stood, Stabat Mater Dolorosa. The Sorrowful Mother Stood, um, Weeping at the Cross, Close to Jesus to the Last. It's a beautiful hymn. We sing it actually here at the seminary on Fridays during Lent when we make the Stations of the Cross. So we do have this theme of, of the Sorrowful Mother, Our Lady of Sorrows, Mary at the Cross, whose very prominent during the season of Lent for us Catholics. And I couldn't help but think of her when I read this scene with the three grieving mothers um, of, of Shakespeare's historical tetralogy all together and all weeping and mourning over their lost sons and husbands. The hymn which we sing in the Byzantine liturgy, The Grieving Mother, um, I think is, is, is apt because it expresses, on the one hand the sorrow of the, the very human sorrow of the mother, at seeing the suffering of her son. And we, we can all identify with that, and it's, it's very moving to us. Um, almost everyone I've spoken to has ever watched The Passion of the Christ, that movie by Mel Gibson, myself included. The scene that's most moving for us is not you know any of those moments when Jesus is being tortured and bleeding. But the moment when he meets the eyes of his mother on his way to Mount Calvary and they run toward one another and you can see the actress who played Mary is really wonderful in this role. I mean, she's excellent. And you can see in her face the agony which she feels at, at seeing her son's suffering. And then the camera shows a shot of Jesus' face and you can see Far from being consoled by the presence of his mother in that moment, his own suffering is multiplied by seeing how she is grieving over him. It's such a tender and heartbreaking moment. So in this hymn, we we hear that. But we also hear, in a final verse, we hear sort of Jesus' words of triumph. Uh, And in that, we get a sense of what C.S. Lewis called the catastrophe" of the Passion. That means, like, the good catastrophe. <laughs> the good tragedy, which is the Passion. And because the Passion leads inexorably to the Resurrection. You know, and so, that that's, I mean, that's the reason why we say that the martyrs, on the day that they were martyred, they were born into the better life to come. Because martyrdom leads to eternal beatitude. And the, the self-sacrifice of Jesus, the the once and for all atoning sacrifice on the cross, opened up the doors of heaven to us. It was our, our final absolution from sin. It saved us from evil and from all the consequences of evil, from eternal death, eternal separation from God. It rescued us from the clutches of Satan. And allowed us to be reunited once and for all to the Father who made us for himself. So, in the final verse of this beautiful hymn, Jesus tells his mother, uh, Weep not for me when you see me suffer, for I shall arise. And I shall share my glory with you, O my mother. And it's, this, it's at once majestic. It's like a trumpet blast um, foretelling the victory of the Son at this moment we see him bloodied and wounded but that we will see him again risen and crowned with glory and it also has this very very tender note that, that yes he's the, he's, the, he's the man of sorrows who will become the king of glory but he's also the son of Mary who although now he is suffering and shedding his blood for her and for all of us when he arises again he will share his glory with her and he will crown her alongside himself. Like we pray uh, in, the, in the rosary, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus ascended into heaven, shortly thereafter, when rather than allowing Mary to die and to decay, he assumed her body and soul into heaven and seated her there in a, a, a crown. He crowned her with glory and he seated her as a, in a throne as the queen of heaven and of earth, the queenship of Mary. And uh, how, how fitting that is for our Blessed Lady to be crowned in heaven as a queen alongside her son, the King of Glory. So it's a lovely hymn. In fact, if you will indulge me, um, and I apologize in advance if the quality is not so good, but I will share it with you now so you can get a taste of what I'm talking about.
1: The grieving mother stood beneath the cross, Weeping in sorrow, tearfully she prayed, O son, my son, innocent and faultless, Why must you suffer this bitter passion on the cross? O son, my son, innocent and faultless, why must you suffer this bitter passion? On the cross Bitter tears are falling Near your holy body O oh, my child, I raised you Long before these enemies Now as I lose you While I weep before you O my son, you leave me, and your life I will no longer see. Now as I lose you, while I weep before you, O my son, you leave me, and your life I will no longer see. Weep not for me, Mother, make no lamentation. When you see me suffer and placed in the tomb, I shall arise and shall share my glory with you, O my Mother, and with those who honor you with love. I shall arise and shall share my glory with you, O my mother, and with those who honor you with love. Do not be afraid.
0: Do not be afraid. Open your hearts. Open up your hearts to Christ.
1: The world is charged with
0: the grandeur of God. I have just a little bit of time left for this podcast. I know I'm already over an hour, and uh, I don't want to draw it out too much. Um, but I wanted to share with you just one, one more gem from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's Retreat, Heaven and Faith. And I think it is, well, it, it's apt to all times, but it's very suitable for right now for two reasons. One, we're in the midst of Lent, which is this time of being in the desert um, with everything that entails. And two, because we're, we're suffering right now as a nation and indeed the whole world under this threat of the coronavirus which is omnipresent. I mean, you can't get away from this. And I know it's causing a lot of anxiety and fear for many, many people. Um, And I think as a church, our reaction to this has been uneven and in many places probably not quite as good as it could have been. Many dioceses around the world have canceled all masses, um, which I, I... I wouldn't venture to judge in different cases whether that is a prudent decision or not. In some cases, that may be the best decision because um, you know, you, we have to have um, these public health measures to try to prevent the spread of the disease. Okay, But we have to also be very, very vigilant about our spiritual health, all the more so during a crisis like this. And um, one bishop I know recently <clears throat> was preaching on the... Uh, well, it wasn't specifically on the coronavirus, but anyway, he was was preaching on on, uh, uh, Sunday recently. And he said, everyone is so anxious, excuse me, everyone is so anxious about the coronavirus and the possibility of catching this deadly disease. But how many of us are truly anxious about the state of our own souls? How many of us are following the Lord's the Lord's precept, his, indeed His command to us, so this is not just a recommendation, not to fear the one who can destroy the body, but to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. That is to say, if you're worried about the state of your own body, and sometimes there is just cause to be concerned, you ought to be at least as worried about the state of your own soul. And indeed, these, uh, these times of trial a bodily trial should be an occasion to reflect on the state of our soul. There's a priest I know who, who, who blogs, a blogger priest. <laughs> he's, he's quite famous. And he always uses these, these times of kind of crisis to post this big reminder in all caps in bold. Go to confession. <laughs> Which is advice I have to take today. It's Saturday. I usually go to confession on Saturdays. I haven't had a chance yet, so once I finish the podcast, I'll be going over to our local parish. But um, it's great advice, you know, and the church has to be there for people in times like this to provide spiritual sustenance, especially the sacraments, to so that people can go to confession, they can receive Holy Communion, they can go to Masses if at all possible. You know, one bishop in Poland has been instructing his priests not to cut masses but to multiply masses have more masses if you have more masses you can have smaller congregations and therefore you know you can abide by the civic requirements for public health of not having gatherings of over 100 people or whatever so you don't you know you can maintain more distance and not spread the disease so we should be we should be thinking outside the box with these kind of creative measures um, like what can we do to to continue to provide spiritual support for the people who need it now more than ever. Also reaching out to those who might be isolated by this disease. Um, the pastor of the Byzantine parish that I've been going to on Fridays, he and his deacon are um, identifying those parishioners in their parish, and they have a small parish, um, very small. But they're reaching out to those who they know are already like kind of isolated, especially the elderly, those who live alone, and just keeping in touch with them. They're trying to go visit them during the week. Um, he and the deacon are, and I think some of the laity are teaming up to take them like to get groceries and to doctor's appointments and things like that. Because these people are afraid to leave the house. And um, at a time of crisis like this can really be very isolating, especially for those who are already kind of on the brink. So as a church, I mean, we need to be there for people in times like this. We can't just shut down. Um, Yes, some of our events might have to be canceled or curtailed or, or, or greatly reduced, things like that, but we, we have to be on the front lines um, and, and among our people. We can't, we can't leave the sheep without the shepherds, uh, especially at times when they may, they may be tempted to become anxious um, and out of, out of concern for their bodies, they might forget to be concerned for their souls. We have to remind them about the reality of the eternity of the soul and of eternal life, and that, and, that, uh, and that God has made them for himself. He's made them for love. And the exigencies of this world, although important, are not final. This world is passing away, and everything in it is passing away. And yet, we will not pass away. <laughs> no matter what happens to the world or even to our bodies, we are made for love. We're made for eternity. And that's part of the teaching of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and along with that, I spoke about it a little bit earlier with the idea of heaven and faith, and where God is, there is heaven. And So if we're attentive to him in our hearts and we dwell with him, then we're already, we're already sharing in a foretaste of that eternal beatitude, which we'll enjoy at the end of time, perfectly and forever. But there's something more which I wanted to add, which is, is this. St. Saint Elizabeth, Saint Elizabeth, Elizabeth <laughs> says at one point, in one of her prayers, something like this. um, The abyss of my misery, O God, cries out to the abyss of your mercy, saying, which is greater? God desires from us only one thing, you know, and I think our spiritual life can become disordered sometimes to the extent that we misunderstand what it is God wants from us. Um, God doesn't primarily want our works. And understand this rightly. It's not this, everything I'm going to say right now does not mean we don't need to work. <laughs> On the contrary, we have a lot of work to do. God gives us a mission. But we're talking about what has primacy. God does not primarily want our works from us. He does not primarily want our virtues. Not even that. He does not primarily want... Any of, the, any, of, any of the good that we can do or the goods that we have, he doesn't primarily even want like our time or our money or any of this. And how can I say that? Well, because everything good that we have and that we are is because God has first given it to us. These are all gifts that God has given to us. And so if we offer them back to God, He'll say something like, that's nice, thank you. But there's something that you have which is all your own, which I did not give you. And that's what I want. I don't only want you to receive my gifts and to offer them back to me with open hands. That's very good. It shows you're not um, clinging to those things and trying to like keep them from me now. <laughs> but I want you to offer to me that that thing that you have that I did not give you. I want you to reach deep into your heart and to offer up to me in total trust and in total confidence what is most completely your own. And friends, what is it? What am I talking about? (laughs) What is it that we have that God did not give us? But our sin, our misery, that's what St. Elizabeth means when she talks about the abyss of my misery. Our our own, she also puts it in this language, um, that vein of resistance to God which runs through our hearts. God did not give us that. We inherit that from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and from the original sin they were, when they were uh, tempted by the devil. But the vein of resistance to God, this vein of, we could put it another way, of, um, of self-reliance, Which leads us into anxiety, which leads us into um, jealousy, envy, acts of revenge, greed. All the capital vices (laughs) spring from this, and all sins spring from those. That is fully ours. And this can seem like a stark truth when we think, wow, everything good that I have and everything that I am, God gave it to me except for my sin. (laughs) Like the one thing that I am really the author of is my sin. Oh, that's not so great. Until we consider that God, the author of all good, the father of all good things, is as it were, holding out his hands to us, saying, My son, my daughter, lay down the misery and the evil of your hearts here in my hands. I do not want you to carry that. Give it to me. Give it to me. This is the whole reason that the Son of God became a man, He became incarnate, he suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered all the bitter wounds of the passion, so that he could take upon himself all the evil which belongs to our human nature, and he could, as it were, he could could redeem it by taking it on himself as God. He became man because we human beings have all this evil. But in becoming man, he didn't stop being God. And this is the great sleight of hand, as it were, of the incarnation and the resurrection. This is the great trick he played on the devil. (laughs) He became a man. He took all this evil. But as God, he redeemed it all. God God is greater than evil. God is so much greater than than our misery. So when St. Elizabeth says, The abyss of my misery is crying out, God, to the abyss of your mercy, saying, Which is greater? The answer is, well, the abyss of God's mercy, by far, exponentially greater, infinitely greater. Another great mystic, St. Faustina, said that if all the sins of the world, all the sins of the world, from the original sin of Adam and Eve, all the way up to my own sins, everything, Hitler, <laughs> Stalin, I mean, Nero, everything, They were all put together and weighed next to the mercy of God. It would be like a drop of water in an endless sea. The mercy of God is as great as that. And what He wants is for us to trust Him enough to give Him our misery. And this is why often... um, in times of anxiety, or of stress, or of fear, I mean, when we're, really, when we're really put to the test, our tendency is to run away from God. Like I was reading recently a biography of John Wesley, <laughs> the father of Methodism, because we got it in the library, and I used to be a Methodist. I thought, well, I might as well check this out. And so I was just kind of browsing through it. And there was one moment he was sent to the United States twice, or not sent, I suppose, but he chose to come. And he, he came to sort of establish Methodism in the USA. The second time was a success. The first time was a total and abject failure. And he came, and there was a lot of resistance, and he suffered a lot. And on his way back to England, defeated, he wrote in his journal, I have a fair-weather religion. How true that is for many of us. And I indict myself as well. Insofar as, we've, insofar as in moments of true trial, we do not trust God with our misery, but we insist on trying to shoulder it ourselves alone. We turn our backs on Him. We also have a fair-weather religion. We're not giving God what He really wants. He wants us to be with Him all the time. Yes, at times of fair weather, He wants us to rejoice with Him. He wants to rejoice with us. But likewise, in times of great trial, and those times, I would venture to say, are even more important for us. So we have to have 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 courage. Courage in prayer means to go before God as we are. Not to refuse to go before Him because well, I don't look good enough. (laughs) I'm not in good enough spiritual shape. Uh, I don't want God to see me like this. I'm not worthy. Nor, on the other hand, to go before Him pretending to be otherwise than we are, putting on a good show of religion and virtue without really addressing the needs of our hearts. But to go before Him in truth, to have That's that's the courage, that's the confidence that God is looking for. He knows what our hearts are like. He wants us to come before Him, to reach down deep into the abyss of our misery, and to offer it all to Him. Open hearts and open hands, so that He can pour into our abyss the abyss of His mercy. So St. Elizabeth's prayer that I've been praying twice a day, ends with, bury yourself in me, that I may bury myself in you. And this is what we're talking about. It's, it's the language of the mystics. And so, um, it's not necessarily totally susceptible to an exhaustive logical analysis. <laughs> but, when you speak about burying and, and, and the abyss is what we're talking about, to pour out our misery before God and to entrust Him with it so that He can pour out His mercy into us. He can bury Himself in us. He can come to dwell in us more fully and we can dwell with Him in peace. And for this, you know, we need the sacraments. We need the means of grace. We need the church. But even if where you live maybe masses have been suspended or or because you're ill or you're fearful of getting ill you're not able to go to church God remains with you he remains in the deepest center of your heart and there he is continually inviting you with a gentle and a peaceful call to come and to surrender to him all the misery of your heart and so my friends let us conclude this podcast with a little prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Trinity, whom I adore, I truly believe in faith that you are present here at the innermost depth of my heart. And I long to be attentive to you there now and at every moment Although I may be occupied with many things in my mind and heart and in my activities, Lord, let me be established there with you at my deepmost deep in the peace and the stability of your Trinitarian life. And God, at this moment, I resolve to give to you all the misery which is native to my heart, I gather it up and I lay it at your feet in confidence and courage, knowing that you are the Lord and the love of my life. And I beg you to give me in return all your mercy and all the love which you have promised to those keep your commandments most of all Lord remain with me for if I have you I have enough and I am satisfied friends may Almighty God bless you may he protect you from all evil especially during these days of trial And may he bring you to everlasting life. Amen.